0: A couple of years ago, Psychology Today published an article on how to improve yourself with uh, uh, building up your self-confidence. And as I was looking for this particular article, I I noticed that every couple months they have a um, a new article on self-improvement. And they go through a list of things from 4 to 12 things that you need to do in order to improve your life And the main idea seems to uh, have the same nature, and that is being that you need to think more highly of yourself than you do. But in this one article, some of the things that they listed was, first, make three lists of strengths, achievements, things that you admire about yourself. The second thing was think positive about yourself. Third, dress sharply. Fourth, exercise. And fifth, manage stress levels. Well, the view was that if you learn to like yourself and trust yourself and have self-confidence, the odds are that you would be very successful, uh, that you would uh, have success at a much higher level. And now we live in a world that loves self-confident people, and yet they hate the narcissist, which I think is is very funny, because narcissism, the definition, is a person who has an excessive uh, uh, interest in self-admiration, and they have an idea that the world revolves around them. Now, I have to tell you that Of all the people that you might meet, I think it's very interesting that the Christian doesn't need higher self esteem. The Christian, and it seems like the Christian alone, can see themselves as wretched sinners and not find themselves in despair because they have a Savior. They can see themselves as wretched, but yet, saved by the glory of God. The world will see themselves as wretched and lose all hope. And so the world is trying to say, here, we live in this world, we need to have self-confidence. And if you just have self-confidence, you will be a winner. After all, the winner's... The people with self-confidence achieve things. They get jobs. They get promotions. They win the battles in life, and they make it big in this world. But you see, that doesn't work with God. In fact, self-confidence, when it comes to God and and to spirituality, will take you down fast. You trust in yourself and not in God. You're destined to fail. The problem with people amazing uh, analyzing themselves is that they analyze themselves poorly and wrongly. According to Jeremiah 17.9, here's the analysis that they should hear. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, the Bible says that all men have a deceitful and sick heart. So if you're trying to do a self-analysis and achieve self-confidence, you'll never have it in a relationship with God. Now, every now and then, you hear uh, some believer dogmatically and confidently say, I will follow Jesus no matter what. You can count on it. Kent Hughes said something that is accurate, and I want to quote. Presumption has always been dangerous for anyone who follows Christ, for following him necessarily involves some hardship. Many are those who have fallen along the way." Quote. Here, as we look at our scripture for this morning, we see the disciples of Christ. And they had been with him for over three years. They had experienced many amazing things. And they had participated in uh, miraculous things. They they thought, at least spiritually thinking, that they were men of steel. But Jesus was about to show them that they are actually men of straw. Peter thought he might be this mighty rock. But he found out that he was just a pebble. And Christ himself was the rock. That's why I named the sermon like I did. It says later in the same chapter, in chapter 14 and verse 72, when these people thought about what they did, they wept. Have you ever been there? Have you assumed this too, that you had good intentions, a high level of zeal, tremendous excitement and expectations, and then fell short. Where you say to the Lord, I will do anything for you. I will give my life. I will never, ever let anything get between us. Nothing will ever cause me to stumble. And then not too long after that, you find your affections very fickle. You find that the passion that you felt so intensely one moment has withered away. A trial or a temptation has thrown you off focus and now you're consumed by ungodly action and attitude. What we see in our text for this morning is human frailty and fickleness. But we also see Christ's faithfulness. And there... The title of the sermon, The Weakness of uh, Petros, which is Peter in the Greek, it means pebble. And the steadfast of Petra, meaning Christ, the solid rock. You see, it can be both encouraging and discouraging when Christians declare their devotion. It's good when they are zealous and want to serve the Lord fearlessly. But it's discouraging when they think they can do it on their own strength. The naive presumption is that a person can follow Christ by simply assertion of one's own will. This reveals the lack of real understanding of one's own heart and the weakness of that heart that basically summarizes what's going on with Peter. But not only Peter, but all the disciples and mark chapter 14 they think that they're so committed to Christ they think they're so strong and they're not they're actually fickle and and they will fall away but Christ is faithful to them and he'll gather them up again but notice that the institution of the lord's supper in verses 22 through 25 is sandwiched in between the prediction of judas's betrayal and the prediction of Peter's denial. I believe this highlights for us the agony of this night for Jesus. Everyone was going to turn against him. Even his own disciples would betray him. It is, of course, very easy for us to criticize the disciples of Christ in some ways. They probably deserve criticism for their confusion for their pride, for their unfaithfulness and self selfishness. As a matter of fact, Mark has been pointing these things out to us so that we can see them, so that we understand that the Bible is not given to flattery. It consistently shows all men but Jesus are sinners and deserving of criticism. But we must be careful in looking at this passage like this, that we do not set ourselves apart over the disciples as if we are superior to them. The truth is that many of us are not even where they were at this time. But if we are, we should know that we are only where we are by the grace of God. It is by his grace that we stand in the time of testing. There is no place for boasting. Because if we are able to stand, it is only because we have learned to trust in him and not in ourselves. This is the very thing that Jesus' disciples needed to learn and did learn in part through this whole ordeal of the cross. And they dare say that if we look at the actual temptation they had to face at this time and understand it, we'll be humbled to see how strong they actually were. Even though they thought they needed to become much stronger, and they did become much stronger, we'll be looking at this from a high level of commitment that they had. And then we'll look at how Jesus told them that they would desert him we will see how we must live by faith if we are able to bear the cross. And as we come to our text this morning, we we will see it on the heels of the Passover after the disciples had been in the upper room with Christ. And with it, the close of the Passover celebration, Jesus really begins walking this last stretch of the road leading to the cross, he ends up going to the end of his life on this road to the Gethsemane. Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who would undergo the severe anguish in the garden at the prospect of being alienated from his father, and abandoned by his disciples. The spotless Lamb of God, as Peter would later call him in his epistle, would be crushed under the divine wrath of God in order to bear the iniquities of his people, spilling his precious blood. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53 says, Yet this was the will of the Lord to crush him. When his soul makes an offering for sin, Jesus understood that. The one who just earlier refused to drink that fourth cup, the final cup of the Passover. And we saw that in verse 25. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Jesus refused to drink that fourth cup, that final cup, and now willingly drinks the cup of God's judgment all, all down to the dregs. Earlier, Jesus had told James and John, if you remember, they, they through the efforts of their mother, asked if they could have seats of prominence in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? A little further in the garden, if you look with me at verse 36, Jesus cries out and says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Here, that word nevertheless is a conjunction, and it's the Greek word Allah. And here's what it's there for it takes the first part of the statement and uses it as a transition to the cardinal matter of the perfect will of God. And then later in the garden, if you remember, Jesus told Peter when he was overzealous and took and whacked off Malchus's ear. He says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus drank agony. The bitter agony of the reality of the Father's wrath being poured out upon him at the cross. But here they're on their way to the garden a garden that is believed to actually have these oil presses operative in that day. I think it's fitting, because Jesus would experience the pressing, the overwhelming crushing weight looming over him with the reality of the Father's crushing judgment upon his head, all in order to secure the salvation for sinners. And that's what we, where we find ourselves in the steps of Jesus as he walks toward the cross. So if you would please turn to our text found in Mark chapter 14. This morning we'll be looking at verses 27 through 31. Starting with verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that Today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the others said likewise. Now if you remember in verse 26, uh, it told us that they left the Passover singing hymns as they went to the Mount of Olives. That would have been the traditional Hallel Psalms. The Psalm 116, 17, and 18. And Jesus would have left with the 11, leaving Jerusalem and crossing the Kidron Valley, heading to the Mount of Olives. And they would have done this by leaving through the eastern gate of, of Jerusalem And on this night, they wouldn't have gone all the way back to Bethany as they had in previous nights. They would instead camp out, as it were, in the garden. Jesus himself didn't sleep at all. He would be praying. Jesus is on his way there, the last stretch of the journey, all the way until he is arrested. And this very path would also be traveled by Judas Iscariot. He had earlier been dismissed from the company of, of Jesus and the disciples and he was on his way to get the temple police and they would be following Jesus' trail like a bloodhound after a criminal to betray our Lord. It said that during the Passover... The water in the little brook that went through the Kidron Valley that that they had to cross in order to get to the Mount of Olives was just mixed with blood. The blood of thousands of lambs that had been slain flowing down from the Temple Mount into this little brook. And it's really just a fitting reminder to Christ of his own shed blood. And certainly that was on his mind as he walked with his disciples through the garden. But it's amazing as we read these verses that Jesus seems to be calm in the face of such intense pressure, the greatest pressure that anyone had ever experienced in history. That Passover meal had lasted just a few hours, beginning at sunset uh, around 6 o'clock on Saturday, going until about midnight, And in the dark hours, Jesus walks to Gethsemane. And he was amazingly filled with hope and trust in his father's will. I I think as I was studying this, I thought it was interesting because Jesus was walking the same path that David had walked 1,000 years earlier, barefoot and weeping as he fled his own son Absalom who had betrayed him. Jesus is following that same path. But Jesus wasn't fleeing. He wasn't fleeing Judas. Jesus wasn't running from the cross. Instead, we see a Jesus ready to embrace the reality of his betrayal and his uh, arrest. He walked like no other man could do. And on his way, in spite of the prediction that I read to you in verse twenty seven that all the disciples, not just Judas, would abandon abandon Jesus, Jesus had strength against the backdrop of judgment and failure and betrayal. Jesus is faithful in his endurance to the cross. We witness here the strength of Christ, the resolve of his character in contrast to the weakness and the weak faith of his disciples. Hebrews 12:2. I think just puts it so clearly. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him enduring the cross. Jesus endured and faced the greatest trial that any human being has ever done. He was truly man and truly God. No other man. He had to, man committed sin, man must die. And so he had to be a resemblance of that man. And he was. And in light of that, How did Jesus respond in the face of all this? The seeming defeat of the cross? The impending doom of the Father's wrath? His own abandonment of his disciples? Well, let's start with verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now if you remember, it had only been a short time ago that Jesus said that one would betray him, and that being Judas. But now up in the mountain, Jesus says, all will abandon me. He's basically saying, every single one of you will abandon me. And that verb stumble in the Greek is the word skandalizo. And it means that they would all stumble because of what was happening to Christ. They would run away. And that's where we get our English word scandal. Now, they wouldn't abandon Christ permanently, but they would temporarily. I read an interesting account Of a preacher who was saying, I prayed this once. Oh God, you would be just in smiting me because I deserve it. He said, as he thought about it, that's not right. Because God's justice was fulfilled in the smiting of the shepherd, the smiting of the Savior. It is true that we deserve the punishment. But as believers, Jesus took on our punishment. And God accepted his sacrifice. He was smited so that we wouldn't have to be. Now Jesus says the reason why you will fall away is because it has been predicted by Zechariah in Zechariah 13.7. It has been predicted that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. When the process of smiting the shepherd begins, the sheep will scatter. And the beauty of this prophecy is that in the aftermath of this happening, Zechariah predicts that the shepherd will establish a glorious kingdom in which he will be king over all the earth. So this prophecy sits in an amazing context. Everything is carefully predicted God would strike down the shepherd, and when he does, the sheep will run and scatter. Grammatically speaking, it's actually a future passive tense, indicating the fact that the disciples were, we could say, overtaken in their abandonment of Christ. This is not willful defection like like Judas. This wasn't motivated by money like Judas was. This wasn't premeditated. This was a lapse. This was a temporary scandalizo. A temporary scandal. They eventually, in the garden, would be overtaken by their sin. They would stumble in their faith. And out of fear for their own lives, they would fall away. But they wouldn't apostatize. And that is made clear In later verses, they abandoned Jesus about the fact that they would never deny him. And then even further as we read in the Gospels, they actually did repent of this sin. And as history records, all but John suffered a martyr's martyr's death. And so we have to understand this is a temporary lapse, a temporary falling away. But what is true about them can also be true about us. So often we don't plan on on sinning. And at least I hope we don't plan on sinning. We're often guilty of stumbling in our weakness the weakness of our flesh. But here we see that Jesus was willing to be faithful to the Father's plan. He had confidence in the Father's plan. The good news of salvation is not based upon our weakness or our fitness, but on the strength of Christ, the resolve of Christ to obey the Father. Jesus' focus in verse 27 is really not a failure of the 11, though he predicts that. He says, you all will be made to stumble. The the focus of verse 27 is really his trustworthiness of the Father's plan. That trustworthiness of sacred scripture being fulfilled. And if you notice, it says, for it is written. The Old Testament says it. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It was common. They all knew it. And again, Jesus views these 11 as his true sheep. We need to understand that. This is not sin leading to apostasy. These are his sheep. Psalm 95.7 says, For he is our God, and we are his people. We are the sheep of his hand, the, past, the people of his pasture. Jesus sees these people falling into a scandal, but not falling away permanently. They will stumble, but we need to remember what Jesus said in John 10, 28, 27 and 28. Listen. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I think it's very interesting. He says, my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. If you were to go to the White House and say, I want to get in to see the president because I know him. He's he's a friend of the family, you know. We used to do all kinds of stuff together. The guards at the gate, they're not letting you in. But if the president comes up in out of the White House and says, "Hey, you're here. I can't believe it." Guess what? You're in. It doesn't. It isn't about you knowing Him. It's about Him knowing you. It's about Him. And so when we have a common knowledge where we know Him because He knows us, we're in. And we need to understand that this good shepherd is holding and preserving the ultimate faith of the disciples. And to be sure, the Father, according to his plan before the foundation of the world, said he would strike Jesus as the shepherd. And as I read in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And we, are, uh, we read about the fact in Isaiah 53.6 We are all like sheep have gone astray. And that is why Isaiah says in 53, 4, and 5, But he was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. He bears our griefs, carries our sorrows, and he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And because the shepherd Jesus is struck, Jesus says there will be a scattering. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, the, the uh, disciples stumbled. But I want you to look at verse 50. Just look ahead. You'll notice just a, a brief statement in verse 50. It says, Then they all forsook him and fled. That, that actually happened. Jesus wasn't rattled by this it was prophesied it was it was decreed that this would happen and jesus told them as it's recorded in in john 16:32 behold the hour is coming and indeed ha- has come when you will be scattered each of each to his own home and will leave me alone yet i am not alone for the father is with me And just as Judas betrayed, uh, betrayal was sinful, but followed the fulfillment of Scripture, so is the falling away of these disciples fulfilling Scripture. The essence of the gospel is highlighted, uh, highlighting our sin and our failings, being overcome. But you see, the gospel talks about the perfect Obedience of Christ, fulfilling our imperfect obedience. We can never obey. Jesus trusts the will of his Father. He knows that he is the only begotten Son, and the dark hours of the cross are about to come upon him. And in the face and the view of this, it looks as though it's going to be defeat. Jesus knows the will of the Father. He knows that this arrest looks like failure. But it's actually God's plan of victory over sin. And that's the whole point. And it's critical that we see ourselves for who we are and what we are. We are sinners and apart from God's grace, we will not accomplish anything positive for the glory of God. In and of ourselves, we are failures. And this is exactly what God's Word says. We make a fatal mistake if we walk around self-confident in ourselves. We are to put no confidence in the flesh. In us lies no good thing. Our confidence must be in the Lord, always in the Lord. When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, he said to ask God not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Why did he teach them? Why didn't he just teach them to pray to do things right? And that they would be delivering themselves from evil. The reason he didn't is because they can't. God must do it. But look at verse 28. It says, But after I have been risen, I will go before you to Galilee. This is the the entire future of this program really hinges on Christ being raised from the dead. Now, God never presents any person being able to stand on their own in relationship with him. The only way someone can stand is by Christ doing the work. Anyone else who tries to stand on himself and in his own works will fall flat on his face. These disciples would fall flat on their face and yet Christ promises that he will meet them in spite of this. In fact, after Christ's resurrection, an angel reminds them of this in Mark sixteen six through 7 What Christ is promising is that these disciples will be restored to complete fellowship. And not only this, but he will greatly use them even after they run away, even after they left me in my darkest hour, even after they, they failed me, Jesus says, I will still use you. And when Jesus says he'll go before them, he's making a powerful point. He's not just, doesn't just mean that he'll beat them there. He's gonna walk them, he's gonna walk faster, although he did. He was there well before them. But Mark 16:7 says, I will. Uh, I will be there, go before you. Meaning, I will become the head of your life again in Galilee. Now, Galilee was the place where they lived, that they called home. And so this would be a fitting place to restore them. And this verse is, is good news for the rest of us. Not only would the disciples be scattered from Christ, but they would also be united with Christ Later in the book of Mark, this is literally fulfilled as we see in Mark 16, 7. Jesus always keeps his promise. He he knows the future. He controls the future. Things are not merely happening to him. He is the head over all these things. He is in control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And it's his plan for his glory and our salvation. Here he tells his disciples some important things that they really didn't want to hear. But it will all happen just as he says. He's going to, he tells them they're going to fall away, but he's going to regather them. And I think it's interesting. Of these two things that Jesus speaks of, what does Peter choose to focus on? Peter talks about them deserting him, and he talks about his resurrection. What would be more exciting for you to talk about? But It would be the resurrection, right? But this hasn't sunk in yet. And so Peter immediately latches onto the statement about them falling away. And it's interesting that they don't seem to have anything to say about Jesus being raised and going to Galilee. You see, Peter's pride is so wounded by the idea that he would fall away, he defends himself. And that's what pride does. It defends itself. Pride makes bold claims about yourself. Pride elevates yourself even above others. If you notice that Peter does all of these things and shows his shortcomings. In verse 29, Peter says to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not. He just set himself above these other guys. He says, you know what? Jesus It doesn't matter what you're saying, you're wrong. It's sort of similar to what happened in chapter 8 when Jesus predicted his death and resurrection and and Peter comes and rebukes him. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. But Peter, you would think, okay, Christ already told me that once, I got it straight, but he doesn't. Instead, he's sort of like, Jesus, come on. You must not realize how committed I am. You, you're really not un- understanding my passion, my perseverance. I really need to assure you that this isn't going to happen because I, even if they do, I will not fall away. Peter arrogantly defends himself. And not only that, he's saying that Christ is in error. Peter makes a bold assertion about himself. He's looking to himself, relying on his own strength, boasting in his own ability. And not only that, he's elevating himself. Even if those people do, I won't. You can almost picture Peter pointing at the others in a condescending tone. You know, I know I know these guys are sometimes slackers. They'll probably fall away. I can see that. But your statement about all come on, Jesus. It's Peter. It's me. I won't. Have you ever said that? Have you ever made a promise to God I won't do that? I won't fall. I won't fail. You can count on me. I will never do anything shameful or sinful. You know, I think we do it all the time. People come to Christ and they're on fire. But slowly and surely they back away from reading the Bible, from prayer, even going to church. These are some of the same people that say, God, you can count on me. is actually disbelieving what Jesus said. He's implying that Jesus isn't telling the truth. He's also implying that I will not fall away. Both of these assumptions are ludicrous. Bible commentator William Hendrickson says, said, Peter has an inflated opinion of himself, is overconfident, conceited, as events are quickly going to prove. And so in verse 30, Jesus responds to Peter's confident assertions. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. In other words, he's saying, hey, brother, I'm sorry, but you're not even going to make it to morning. Before dawn, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And not only will you run like all the rest, you will take it to another level and deny me three times. Peter was always sort of the big mouth. He's always the one speaking the most brashly. And you have to realize that as you talk so confidently and people are watching you and then they, they fail, if you act like you have no failures and that you are dependent upon yourself, those people watching may end up in shipwreck because they're watching you and they're thinking, well, he does it. It must be because he does all these things. No, he does all those things, reading the Bible, going to church, studying the Word, because he realizes his substance is in Christ. We need to be very careful and learn a very important spiritual principle of the, the lesson of never and always. It goes something like this. Never tell God you will never do something. If it's something bad that you never want to do, lean on his grace. Declare, um, you never want to to do lean on his grace. Declare your, your faithfulness. But if you say, I'll never do that, you're just inviting the world, the flesh, and the devil to tempt you, to lure you in. And then there's some good things. Well, well, God, I'll never be a pastor. I'll never go and evangelize on the streets. I'll never go and talk to someone who I know doesn't really care for the Jesus thing so that they might find eternal life. I think it's so funny, all of us, have had the word of god brought to us by someone and yet even though we know our own sinfulness we're so slow to take up that same call and talk to someone about the lord then there's the never tell god that you always I'll always be faithful to something I'll always be faithful to you, Lord. If you say that in a self-exalting way, you're more than likely going to be humbled. We need to believe. We need to have Be faithful and obey the Lord. We need to walk with Him day by day, moment by moment, crying out to the Lord to teach you His ways. If you'd please turn to Psalm 119. I want you to see how this all works and our reliance on on the Lord in all of this. Now, I'm going to say some statements with a little emphasis. And I hope you pick up on it. Because it's about the sovereignty of God in all of this. Starting Psalm 119, starting with verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Sometimes, I just sit and wonder, how can an Arminian read that and say, it's all me. It's my free will. Turn my, away my reproach. Revive me. Incline my heart. Take me. You see, it, it's not that it doesn't take us, but it takes us. In obedience to God and what He has done. We need to go, Lord, turn away my reproach. Because I can't. Even though I have dread, I can't. But you can. And I think what we see here in Psalm 119 is that through the instruction of the Lord and only through the instruction of the Lord is the strength of God to have any chance of being faithful to him. And on the other hand, do you know what Peter's doing? He's saying, no. Lord, you're messing up. You're making a big mistake. Here, Peter, he's such a leader. And, he's, he's, and, and all the, the apostles... They're zealous, and they jump on Peter's bandwagon. But I think it's interesting. Jesus didn't say, get behind me, Satan. He didn't argue with them. He let it play out because it needed to be played out for them to learn what they needed to learn. And we need to see that our whole salvation rests upon the Lord. He is the only one who can deal with the weighty matters of justice, of fulfilling the law and purchasing grace for all of God's elect people. He alone could face the opposition of men and overcome them. He alone can bring about the advantages of the church. He is the one who sustains by who he is, the Son of God. And he does it by his own righteousness. In John 17, Jesus says, I pray that you do not take them out of the world, but you keep them in the world, and that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. And then he says, And Father, I sanctify myself. I hope you realize Christ is the only person who could ever say that. He sanctifies himself. Sanctify is to be made holy. Holy is to be set apart. You cannot set yourself apart as a created being. Christ can and did. Our sanctification has to come through him. And he teaches his disciples that their salvation rests entirely upon him. The fleshly nature within Christians sometimes lusts against the notions of the Holy Spirit within the heart. And at those times, we need to see God's grace even more. It's true that when we were converted, that God... Christ gave the death blow to the old man, but we live within this flesh. We need to seek the Holy Spirit's ongoing work day by day to continually give us wisdom. It says that we should be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a present imperative, meaning, be being filled. Be being filled now, 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 now. It never stops. Only the Spirit, Holy Spirit, can give us that right kind of wisdom for the situations that we enter. He can only give us the correct understanding of the truth in Scripture. spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We need to have the Holy Spirit. You see, there is a human and earthly wisdom which is selfish. It's based upon human observations apart, uh, and logic apart from the wisdom of God's Word. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. But you know, Peter nor the other disciples had learned this yet. Because in verse 31 of our text, it says, But he, meaning Peter, spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all they all said likewise. That word vehemently is the word peresos and It has the idea of continual, emphatic. It has great emphasis and great compassion. You have to respect Peter's determination. It's an admirable thing, but doubting Jesus' word is not admirable, not noble at all. Peter is trusting in his own flesh. Peter is a positive example as he encourages us to follow in First Peter chapter two, he talks about uh, how uh, there is suffering, and that we need to trust in God, just as God, as Christ trusted in His Father. And Peter eventually did trust unto death; he died a martyr's death. In Proverbs sixteen eight. 18 It says, Pride goes before destruction and haughty spirit before the fall. But Peter writes, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. I would say Peter got it. He didn't get it yet. Here he's still filled with pride. So much so that at the end of verse 31, it says that, you know, remember he's the leader. And it says, "And they all said the same. Peter's negative example resulted on the others being boastful. That's sad. They all left him. They all denied him at Jesus' most needful hour. But again, all hope is not lost. John's Gospel records in, in John chapter 21 that after Jesus' resurrection, he's having breakfast with the disciples on the shore. And he asked Peter a question three times. He asked Peter, in light of everything that you said, you know, you talked a big game, in light of everything you've done, I know of your denial of me, just as I predicted and so do you know what Jesus does? He asks them, Peter, do you love me? He does it three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And finally, after the third time, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. And I think what Peter was probably thinking is, you know everything, you know my boasting, you know my failures. You, your prediction was true. I pray you know my remorse. You know my repentance. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. You see, Jesus provides here for Peter truth in the midst of denial. And that's a lesson for us to learn from Peter. A lesson regarding humility. If the gospel hasn't humbled you, nothing will. And You know, the most humble people on earth should be true Christians. You want a character mark of an unbeliever? It's someone who is filled with pride. But Peter's pride was broken. Peter was broken and he he repented. I want to encourage you, first and foremost... Don't ever think God is surprised by your sinful failings. Flee to him. Confess your sins. And I've said this before, and I want to keep saying this. The word confess in the Greek is homilageo. And it means to speak the same, to say the same as another, to agree with assent and admit or declare your guilt. When you confess to God, you're not going, you know what, I'm bringing you something You maybe you don't know, or maybe you saw it and you just weren't sure. No. When you confess, you go, Lord, that sin that I had is exactly as sinful as you say it is, and that cost the life of your son. That's what I'm confessing. It is the same thing that you say. God hates sin so much that he gave his only son to pay the penalty for it. That's what we do when we repent. That's what we do when we come and we confess that sin. And that's what Peter did. Because Peter understood that Jesus is a tender shepherd. Peter believe the essence of the gospel, that we can freely and fully confess our sins to a warm and tender-handed shepherd. He will reach down with the crook of his staff and pull pull us up and clothe us with his righteousness. We are in safe union with Christ, and if we are, we should not fear. We ought to run to him, flee to him, commit your life to him. Stop boasting. Our boast should be in the gospel, in the gospel alone. So we learn from these verses that when we are weak, and especially when we are weak, he is strong. For our sake he, was, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness righteousness of God. Glory to be to his name and his name alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask by your grace, by your spirit, help us to see how marvelous, how wonderful, and how beautiful Jesus our Lord is the one who took the cup of wrath and drank it to the dregs, so that we wouldn't have to. And so we ask, Father, through the beauty and power of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, help us to rejoice in Christ our Redeemer. We pray this all in his most glorious and precious name. Amen.